Welcome to Reforming Slavics. Today we are talking about the unconditional election of God, one of the five points of TULIP. Um, my name is Nick, and today we have Tom with us as well. What's up, guys? And so we did a discussion on the T of TULIP, which is total depravity, yeah. which references the inability of men to choose God because yep. they are at war with him. Um, scripture says man is dead in sin. Scripture talks about the inability of man to hear. They don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. Scripture talks about the inability of the fleshly man. The flesh does not know how to please God, nor can it. So that was the T of tulip, total depravity. And so today we're talking about unconditional election. And we're going to talk about what that means, define some points and vocabulary in regards to um, how we understand how God chooses to save those he does save. Scripture clearly talks about the word predestination, right? It's an actual word that's used in uh, verses like Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And then uh, it's used in many passages as well, but it's also used in Romans 8. And I'll read those. Um, so Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, I'm reading the ESV. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, right, the word predestination is right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... This passage says that God the Father, the Godhead, before the foundation of the world, meaning bef- prior to creation, prior to the existence of this world, had decided or chose particular individuals for adoption. Yeah. Uh, adoption is uh, one of the aspects of salvation in which we are now co-inheritors of the uh, inheritance of God. And it's talking about the fact that we are no longer slaves, but sons. So it's a reference to the fact that we are part of God's family. And in order to be part of God's family, individuals are part of families. You can't just have a group, right? He, he says specifically adoption as sons. So it's referencing individuals according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, his grace. So, God adopted us and decided to adopt us prior to our existence as individuals, and the reason he did so was because he wanted to. In other words, God has the freedom to save for his own eternal purpose without any um, barrier to entry. Well, yeah, it said to the purpose of his will, verse 5. And then verse 11, it repeats the same thing. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's his will. Yeah, God does whatever he pleases, right? If, if God wills something, this goes back to like the very elementary aspects of um, the attributes of God, right? So there are communicable attributes of God. Communicable means they are transferable or we understand them and we can experience them at some point. 
those attributes are things like love, anger, right? God gets angry. Justice. We experience these characteristics of God. Now, incommunicable attributes are the attributes of God that he only possesses because that's what makes him God as holy and separate from us. And those things are like omniscience, right? Omniscience. He's all-knowing. Omnipresence. He's present everywhere. Omnipotence. Omnipotent, mm-hmm. right? Potence meaning power. So he's all-powerful. Yeah. These are characteristics that we can't experience. They're not communicable. And therefore, when we read um, Ephesians 1, it tells us something about who God is. It says that God is capable of all power. And so he is powerful enough to do anything he wants. He, if he desires to do something, he can accomplish it. Um, and so when he desires, before the foundations of the world, to adopt you as a child, he will get that done. And there are some definitions I'd want to go through. Um, and we could, you want to jump to um, Romans 8, 29 through 30, and then we'll tie back to, down to Ephesians because it talks about very similar aspects. Um, in Romans 8, 29 through 30, again, in the ESV, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, again, predestined again, right, that word, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if you want to match these two passages up, when God is talking about adoption, you could link that up with, in Ephesians, God is talking about adoption. In Romans, he's talking about justification. In a time, if you, if you put a timeline of Christian's faith, justification and adoption happening at the same time there's just different aspects of our justification redemption salvation being born again being justified being um what's that i don't know how did i space on the word born again what's the technical term for being born again regenerated regenerated there we go i don't know why that so justification regeneration adoption all happen simultaneously because we have saving faith yeah and so definitions there's this idea that people have that god saves people or elects or predestines people because god clearly predestines people we can't get away from that you know some people say well god doesn't predestine it's like no matter what kind of christian you are if you read your bible you have to conclude that god in fact predestines yeah and like it's not like that word is somehow new because it's in the English translation. It, it's in the Greek. It, the word literally means to pre to preordain or predestined, right? Yeah, the, the the conclusion has already been secured. There's no there's no outside potential for uh, a different conclusion or alternative conclusion. God has decided to accomplish this, and He will accomplish. Now, in, in Romans, when we read the first verse, um, it says, for whom he foreknew. What is foreknowledge? Um, because that, the definition, the way you define foreknowledge determines a lot about what you believe about God's all, all-knowing power, his, his omniscience, right? So what part of the verse? So the very first 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah. Why does God predestine people? Because he foreknows them. What does foreknowledge mean? Does God does God look into the future and see the choices that people will make and based upon that knowledge decide to predestine them or not? Here's here's the definition of conditional election. I'll read it because we're talking we want to get to unconditional election. This is what conditional election means. This is the counterpoint of Arminian Arminius or Arminians. This is what they say. This is the reason or the way God chooses to save people. God's choice of certain individuals upon salvation is the foundation of the before the foundation of the world is based upon his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew would themselves fully believe in the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw upon, or he looked upon, which is based upon his choice, is not given to a sinner by God. It is not created by the power of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, but is solely resulted from man's will. It is left entirely upon man as to whom he would believe. Therefore, it is elected, and therefore he's elected unto salvation. God chooses those whom he knew would, by their own free will, choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice, not Christ, not God's, is the ultimate cause for salvation. Yeah. So, R.C. Sproul, one thing he says is, obviously, every Christian believes in predestination because it's in the Bible, the, the term itself. The question is, how do you define predestination? Uh, it, it all depends on what is the condition of God choosing someone to be elect or to be in the group of people that God will save? What yeah. is that condition? What is the reason? And some people say the world is constructed in a way and God's knowledge is in a way where God looks in the future and sees the way people choose to live their lives. And if he sees that this person would choose God, then he elects them. In other words, God looks into the future, which seems very inconsistent with what we know about who God, about God's omniscience, right? God's knowledge of all things. And the reason I say it is because God, why does God know the future? How does God know the future? God does not know the future because he looks into the future. It mm -hmm. is not as though God is at the beginning of all time skips to the end of a book, reads the last chapter, and finds out the conclusion. He wrote the book. He's the one who's actually authoring the book. And so when he authors a page of the book, there's no need for him to look any further or look behind or study history. He's yeah. the one who is quite literally the author of history. And so when we say God foreknew something, it is not as though he's looking forward. It's not foresight. It's not like he's looking through a globe into people's choices. Yeah, He's, in fact, writing the entire history of the world from its foundation to the very conclusion where everything burns. Yeah, so then what does foreknowledge mean? So when God says he foreknew someone, it's referencing the fact that he has knowledge of all things, and he intimately decided to know them. In the Bible, there's a lot of references to knowledge in a way where 
it refers to an intimacy between a two man individuals, and a woman. right? Like, yeah, like uh, erotic intimacy between um, yeah. man and woman, or Adam, God's or God's intimacy yeah. between um, Christ and His bride. Like Adam, right? It says Adam knew his wife, and they bore they bore the son, yeah, Cain. So when when God is talking about foreknowledge, there it's talking about an intimate closeness of a relationship with that individual person and those whom he decided to love in other words um god decided to love someone and then he chose them his 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 choosing is based upon his love and the love is unconditional meaning there is nothing that he looked inside upon an individual and decided that that characteristic specifically made him like him rather than god specifically openly says Christ died for you while you were yet still sinners. There was nothing good in you which he worked out that was pleasing to him, right? Yeah. It it gives you a whole different problem because if you have a God looking to the future, then you have a God gaining knowledge, right? Then you have him learning, which is goes against his all-knowing, like his character. Yeah, his character of uh, knowing all things. And that's open theism. Some people won't go that far. Some people say, well, God just looks into the future and um, he just reacts. But it's not like he. there's a whole bunch of things that can happen that are beyond his knowledge. He just knew it prior to creating it. And the other question we bring up is, well, is now is God now reacting to the to the actions of men? Is God following suit on behalf of other people where he has to have contingencies for every possible interaction that a human has with another human or any choice that we make. Mm-hmm. In other words, was the fall a plan B? Was Did God actually ordain and will the fall to occur? And does God truly know the intentions of men's hearts? You know, uh, was it possible for Christ to not be crucified in the way that he was? Yeah. All these contingencies start popping up. In order for us to recognize who God is and understand his omniscience, we have to realize that God actually does decree. By decreeing, I mean God writes the story of history with every detail, and he weaves this um, pa- what is it, tapestry, and he knows every string. Yeah, and right... Some people might say, well, what if God just looked into the future and saw that his son, like he orchestrated in certain ways that his son would die on the cross, but would say, well, obviously he, he made every single human, he made every single, um, personality, right? He knew when someone would get angry, he knew, he knew Judas's, uh, desire for money, right? He knew every single person that would fall into the into the line of crucifying his son. Yeah, and in Acts, uh, there was a reference to what would happen, right? Uh, when Jesus dies, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. If, if the most horrendous thing that could ever occur in this world, the innocent God himself being crucified was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, then everything else must be as well. Mm-hmm. And so 
with the understanding of how God foreknows and what that word really means in the in uh, Romans and our understanding of how God knows the future. He knows the future because he wrote the book. Um, we recognize that there's a there's a, a need, a necessity for God to choose people without any condition upon their work because ultimately man is dead in sin right if if there was an ability of man to choose god if man had the capacity the cognitive ability the will yeah to choose god then there would not be a necessity for unconditional election the condition would be man's will and some what, people say what do you mean by that like condition like so the reason a condition is a prerequisite for something to happen, right? In other words, the condition for rain is clouds. The con- the condition or the thing that has to happen prior to God's election happens to be man's choosing of God, right? That's what people say condition. When we say unconditional election, we mean that there is nothing that needed to happen prior to God deciding to save you. Mm-hmm. The only thing that God keeps in mind when he wants to save you is, well, I want to, and therefore I'm going to. Yeah. It's his will. Yeah, because that would be a good question to someone. Uh, you can ask him, why, why are you saved? And why is that? why is the person next to you your neighbor possibly not saved. Yeah, and we would have to respond in love. He predestined us uh, as adoption, you know, to himself as sons, according yeah. to what his his purpose, his will, because God wanted to. That that's the answer that Paul even gives in Romans nine, which we will not get into because that's a whole long section. But I mean, Romans nine, right? We could obviously just I could read like just yeah, read some couple, portions. Right, Romans nine, fourteen. You know, what shall I, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And here, verse 16 is very important. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right? It's some, right? So it does not depend on, isn't it some translations on him who works? On yeah. him who walks. And if you continue in 18, it says, So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and yeah. he hardens whom he wills. There is... Yeah, King James Version, Then it does not depend on him who willeth, nor who, who runs. Right? This idea of him who is actually trying trying to be good enough. Going back to his analogy or example between Esau and Jacob saying, before yeah. the, the one was born and didn't act, God decided that he predestined one, and not the other. There is no, yeah. there is nothing man does in order to be conditioned into election. Yeah. And, and so, then, but some people say it's like, whoa, how's that fair? Wasn't like... Wasn't Esau, you know, better and he just messed up once? Well, no. In fact, Jacob and Esau were both very sinful people. Like, you see the amount of times Jacob lies 
throughout his life. And you see the amount of, like, his literal name is heel grabber or someone who deceives, right? Jacob's name is, is named to that. He de- he steals his brother's firstborn blessing. He lies to Laban as he, you know, his father-in-law. He does, he favors, he, he does favoritism with his children, which causes a whole huge mess with his generation, right? Like, Jacob is a sinner, and yet the reason Jacob is renamed to Israel is solely based upon God's choice and not upon the merit of Jacob. Mm-hmm. And so we can see that God does not require your consent to save you. Right? There is there that's the biggest or one of the most important aspects to a lot of Christians is their freedom to choose God. Because the logic goes is if I don't choose God freely, then I'm forced to choose God. And therefore, somehow, that is not real love. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the response that a Reformed person would give from the basis of the Scripture is, He loved you first, and then you loved Him. The reason you are capable of love is you were regenerated and given a new heart. And prior to that new heart being transplanted into you, transplanted into you, you were a rebellious, angry sinner who with every breath opposed everything God stood for. And the reason you're not asked for consent, because if God asked for your consent to save you, your response would always be, God, go take a hike. I'm going to be the God of my own universe. Yeah. And this is, right, we are slaves to sin. It is in whom the son sets free, he is free indeed. Yeah. Free free from what? From our desire to go and be enslaved to sin. Because Cause we love it. The only, it is impossible for us to please God without faith. And the faith is a gift of God. There is also this um, misunderstanding of what man's nature really is, right? And this is going, again, back to total depravity. A lot of Christians believe that there is this innate desire to pursue God in our hearts. That if we were given an opportunity and the gospel was presented in front of us, we would choose God. And scripture over and over and over and over again says, no, you would not. With Romans 3... Mm-hmm. No one choose God, no one seeks after him. All have gone astray with uh, the Pharisees seeing Lazarus raised from the dead and at the very next moment recognizing that Jesus is God and still wanting to kill him. Yeah. With um you know, so there's this there's these encounters over and over again. Yeah. Where we see who God is and we hate him because he will intervene in our lives and he will make us not a slave to sin, but a slave to him. And we have to die to ourselves. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we see our experience and we kind of project it onto the scripture. What we're, uh, what I love about Reformed theology is that it just takes it all consistently, all together, puts it all, all the Bible verses and puts it so consistently. Because oftentimes, like, right, I was growing up and I, the person might say, 
like including my experience, um, I felt God was drawing towards me like my whole entire life. I felt like I knew I wasn't saved, but I felt like God was doing little things in my life. And I'll be like, yes, of course he was. But it's not like something that you were (laughs) choosing, right? You've been born into America that has been so evangelized. You've been born to a family that was Christian. Praise God for that. What if you're born in a different, different country? Or a different time. Right? And the whole entire thing, like, right, we were talking about before the podcast about, like, what if you were not God's chosen people in Israel? Like, why did God choose Israel? Like he says in Deuteronomy, right? Nick could bring it up, but it literally says that it's not because of anything that you have done. It's not because you were special. And like, yeah. what? What if you were born in a different, different uh, place? Like, why did why did God have mercy on Israel, and not have mercy on on Pharaoh? Yeah, Deuteronomy seven seven, referring back to Israel. It was not because you were in number, more in number, than any other people that the Lord has set His love upon you and chose you, for you were a fewest of people. And He goes on. But it is because the Lord loves you, and it is keeping the oath that who He swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out of, uh, brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. And people will say, well, obviously the reason God brought Israel is because He made a promise to Abraham that He will have people of many nations. Have you read the story of Abraham? What was the condition upon the covenant was made with Abraham? If God was faithful. If God was faithful, not if Abraham is faithful. In fact, the ceremony that occurred, right, may, meant that if someone failed in their faithfulness to the covenant, the party that was guilty would be put to death and cut in two. And what was what was Abraham's, uh, like, what was his action while that was all happening? He fell asleep. Abraham slept. Yeah. And God is the one who said, Abraham, if you mess up, I'm the one who's going to carry the blame for your unfaithfulness. And if I mess up, I'm the one who can carry for the blame for my unfaithfulness. And God is always faithful. And so even then, God showed that, Abraham, the condition upon which I made a covenant with you was fully based on all of my work and none of yours. Yeah, all you had to do was sleep. Like <laughs> Abraham literally fell asleep. Like take a rest, you know. Yeah, and so we constantly see that God chooses a people for himself, not because of anything we are capable of, but solely based upon his desire and his free will to choose for all his own for his own purposes, for his own love. And on top of that, Ephesians says, for the praise of his glorious grace. Meaning that there is actual glory going to God for the choices he makes. Yeah. This brings up some uncomfortable conversations that people don't want to have in regards to, well, if God elected some and not others, what happens to the others? Isn't it unfair for God to save some and not others? Tom, I gave you the hardest question. (laughs) Well, if you wanted fair, right, every person would be in hell. And that's the unfortunate thing, right? Well, that if, would be if, very just. 
Yeah, if the person if the person says in court to the judge, like, come on, why aren't you being fair? And the the judge, what is he gonna respond? You want fair? I will I'll give you fair. Here's your fine, here's your criminal punishment. And unfortunately, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. All because of the sin that we have inherited, the sin nature that we've inherited through Adam. So literally what Romans 5 talks about. Through one man, sin entered the world. All became sinners through one man. And then we could obviously go into... And then the conclusion of Romans 6 is yeah. the wages of sin is death. So we have our wages. If you want your wages, God will strike you dead dead. And that would be absolutely fair. And going back to Romans 9. So then he has mercy on whom? Who does he have mercy on? Whom he wills. And he hardens whom he wills. And obviously, um, Paul has an answer to the fair question in Romans nine, nineteen. Right. This is pretty much the question that you know we ha- when I had when I first came up to Reformed theology. I was like, "How is this fair?" And this is like literally Paul object like. Sp- the good teacher that he is, he has the already the answer to us. And it says Romans nine nineteen, you will say you will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for dishonorable I mean for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? I mean, yeah, Paul answers. Yeah, he answers, why, why isn't it fair? Well, who are you to speak back to God? Well, you who are literally clay answer back to the potter hey why why is this happening why are you god in other words right because the the question presupposes that there is some injustice in god Hmm. the audacity a sinful human being one who is unholy unrighteous to look at god and say I find, I find injustice in you is a statement and a claim far beyond anything that we can possibly consider you know, decent, even close to decent. And that's why Paul says, you are literally the clay pot which God, the potter, made. Um, and so, Paul distinguishes the will of man and the will of God. And he says, there's only one free moral agent in this universe. Yeah. It's not you. Right? It ultimately boils down to the There's no other autonomous being. What does autonomous mean, Tom? Just be self-governed, self-law. And there's literally nothing... What that would mean is there would be two opposing wills. Somehow a... uh, a will that wants to do one thing and a will that wants to do the other. And then it's like, all right, that's not possible because one will be able to override the other, won't it? 
Yeah, ultimately, if you don't want to be saved and God wants to save you, the conclusion of that um, interaction will be God's going to save you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the, again, going back to total depravity, the view, the reformed view of the nature of man is that we're dead, rotting at the bottom of the sea, and God dives into the sea, swims down to the bottom, grabs us, brings us back up, breathes life, regenerating life into us, and makes us born again. And people say, well, that seems so unfair to do to one corpse and not to another. I mean, throughout Scripture, we constantly see God saving Israel and all the Egyptians perishing in the sea. God telling Pharaoh, hey, I'm going to harden your heart. And, and he makes much more of an effort to save Israel than he does Pharaoh. Right? It seems that God is working against Pharaoh. And we know that God works for Israel, not because of anything they did, but just because he loves them. And ultimately, it is God's choice to save those whom he wants to. Um, I think that's a really crucial point to understand because if we understand that, we can see that, you know, when you pray for someone's salvation, or you pray in general, or when you evangelize, we talked about this too, you can trust that God's going to accomplish his work. Like, he can actually save and redeem people. He elected them. He saved them. We don't know who it is. No one has an E stamped on the forehead. But God says, hey, I got many people, many, many souls to be saved. And so go do, go do my work. And you can, you can pray for anyone. And we can trust that through our prayers, God effectively can save. Yeah. Now people would, again, I don't want to go into the understanding of compatible free will where our limited will is compatible with God's free will. And why are we just not robots? If God ordained everything, why are we just not robots, not having a free choice, not having a free will? You know, God picks the cereal we eat in the morning. That's a whole nother discussion. Maybe we can get into one day. Yeah. But as as to the unconditional election of God, God chooses to save people based only on what he wants to do and has nothing to do with if we chose him or not or we, we, if we would choose him or not. We can, I think we could get into that maybe in irresistible uh, grace, right? Yeah, I think that'd be... A valid discussion in that regard. Um, yeah. Anything else to say? To wrap up? Yeah, just... I think that the idea of this really affects the way you see God and the way you evangelize and the way you pray. Um, and also just the way you see how you were saved. It relieves so much stress on you to have to perform, to try to pray your way up to God again. You could always just come to God exactly how you are. Just like we heard our pastor this morning is like, <laughs> it's almost so ironic that he brought up Romans eight twenty nine. our pastor Jason in church today. We're listening. He's like, you come to God as you are because um, like who can bring a charge against God's elect? That's very literally the next verse, like Romans 8, 30, 31. Yeah, there's no bad time to come. There's no better time to come, God. And there's no bad time to come, God. Yeah, he is. He is always welcoming, always present. And those whom he foreknows, he predestines. And once he predestines those, he will justify them. And if he justifies them, he will bring them to glory. Yeah. 
and that chain can't be broken, right? The um, name that a lot of people give to those verses in Romans 8, 29 through 30 is the golden chain of redemption because once he elects you, he will glorify you. 